Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church, our Bible class this evening. We're continuing our study in Deuteronomy, particularly focusing on God's character. And that's one of the um, important points that Torah, the five books of the Bible, teach us. Sometimes we think there's very little there for us to apply, but that's not true. And we'll see that even more so this evening. Let's take a few seconds here for spiritual preparation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Let's take a few seconds. Confession of sins and also asking for concentration, having God the Holy Spirit help us, teach us as we study the Word of God this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful that we have this written Word that speaks to us, should every day speak to us. And we're thankful that it expresses to us who you are and what you desire for us to do. As we read about these events, characters in the Old Testament, We should see ourselves and we should be able to understand what is happening and then apply it in our lives. We pray, Father, for our passage this evening. We ask that God the Holy Spirit would clarify it for us and help us to apply it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, as I periodically will do, I have a video that comes from Prager University. And it's about a topic that I've often taught, that I'll speak about it often, and that is the founding of this nation and the fact that we are not just a secular country that just happened to fall on the the coastal line of this continent, but that in fact God had a hand in the developing of the colonies and then also in our founding documents. I'd like to ask Hal to come forward and help me with the playing of this. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you, Hal, and thank you, the professor, for continuing to repeat the fact that God is certainly part of this nation. And the founders were definitely committed to God. And as he mentions, not only uh, did every president address God as they opened their administrations, but many of them even began many of their meetings with God. And so... I think it's important for us to realize that we have a a nation that deserves to be remembered. 
from the standpoint of our of the Word of God and our God. All right, well, let's turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, and we are going to be in the book of not only Deuteronomy, but we're finishing chapter 16, and we'll begin chapter 17. Our outline here in chapters 12 through 26 is the development of the covenant fellowship. When we speak of the covenant fellowship, this is the relationship that God has with Israel. What we learn as we study these chapters is that God desired to have a relationship with mankind. And as human history developed, he decided that he was going to have a nation that would present himself to the rest of the world, to the nations. And he decided that he would have a covenant with this nation. And that nation became known as Israel. And God not only made a covenant with Israel, but he demonstrated his love for them. But in order for them to truly possess the love that God was has designed for them, is they needed to be obedient to him. They needed to understand his righteousness. And in their way of honoring them, God would be able to bless them. And that's what we're studying now. God not only made them a special people, but then he wants to treat them in a special way. And in order for them to do that, they must have a righteous understanding of who he is. Now, God is the same God. He's immutable. He doesn't change. But his methods in administering to human history changes. So when we see Israel and try to compare that to the church age, we have the same God. We simply have a different administration. He still loves us. There are still requirements that we have, but we don't have the same type of covenant. It's different. Theirs was based essentially on being obedient. We are required to be obedient as well, but it's based upon grace. And so there's a difference here between the law and the grace that God uses. Now, last week we began this section with the Pilgrim Festivals, chapter 16, 1 through 17, and we finished at 17, uh, not last week, but the week prior to that. And tonight we're going to study, begin our study of the instruments of theocracy. Theocracy is God rule. Chapter 16, verse 18 through chapter 18 through 22. And we'll see 
these three points underneath the instruments, we're going to see the judges and the officials. And that's what we'll study tonight. Chapter 16, verse 18 to 17, chapter 17, verse 13. Following that, we'll see a section on the kings, how a king is supposed to function. That's chapter 17, 14 through 20. And then subsequent to that, we'll see the priests and Levites, chapter 18, 1 through 8. Now, we'll probably only be able to study the judges and officials tonight. And again, one of the reasons that we're moving, at least I'm trying to move us as quickly as we can, is there's much to be seen here. And I'm trying not to get us lost in uh, the trees, uh, amongst the trees, as we work our way through uh, what we may say is the forest. All right. Tonight, we're in chapter 16, beginning in verse 18. And as we continue to work our way through this, we notice that this is God now giving guidance to judges and the officials, we could say, are the leaders. The elders is where we begin and then develop into judges and to the officials. Verse 18, chapter 16. You, speaking here to Israel, and we'll notice as we go, that Moses really hasn't given guidance on how to appoint these judges, and I'll mention this later. But we speak here initially, verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers, and I think officials is a little better here. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates. The gates, better way to understand this is in in all of your towns, uh, your cities, your villages, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge, they shall govern the people with judge, just judgment. Uh, We have two words that are exactly the same, back to back, and so we have what we might call righteous judgment. Verse 19, first of all, you shall not pervert justice. Secondly, you shall not show partiality. Third, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. In other words, we have failed justice. Twenty, you shall follow what is altogether just, what is righteous, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you may live. And the sense here is not just to live, but to be prosper, to prosperous. God will prosper you and inherit the land. They will inherit the land, but will they possess it is the question. Will they be obedient? Will they follow the Lord's guidance, his directions? 
And yes, it's their inheritance, but they can lose this inheritance. So will they remain in the land? Verse 21, you shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar, which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates or detests. Chapter 17, 1. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep, which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. All right. Let's, I think, verse 1 of chapter 17 is better associated with the last part of chapter 16. That's why I, I read it with the last part of chapter 16. Now, studying the judges and officials in verses 16, 18 through 17, 13. You shall appoint judges and officials in all your towns, your cities, your villages, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, And they shall judge or they shall govern the people with just judgment, with righteous judgment. At this time, Moses had not specified how judges and officials were to be appointed. More than likely, they would be selected from the elders of the tribes that had been taken, that had taken the burdens from Moses. You may remember if they had problems or difficulties within the tribe, there would be elders who would address those. And if they had problems that they simply couldn't handle, then they would come to Moses. The areas framed by the towers in the gateways of ancient cities were the central of community life and the places where the judges of the city would sit there and um, make judgment on various cases. And this is something that we've been able to tell, validate through archaeology, is that in at the gates, people coming and going, that's where the meetings would be held and that's where judges would uh, render decisions and verdicts. The Lord loves justice. And he hates or opposes, rejects discrimination. God did not choose Israel to be his people. God chose Israel to be his people. But he requires a righteous life that reflected his character. So uh, what we have here is God selecting a special people. And he wants them to live a life, of, a righteous life. So... That righteous character should reflect his character. Judges and officials were to govern in a way that honored his name. In other words, they were supposed to also exhibit testimonies that reflected the character of God. Verse 19, we have three prohibitions here. You shall not pervert. The word here for pervert means to bend. The law should be understood and be obeyed. It shouldn't be changed, bent. So you shall not pervert, bend justice. You shall not show partiality. 
The word for partiality in the Hebrew says you shouldn't recognize faces. The idea is somebody comes before you. You may know who they are. They may even be friends or even possibly more. They may be enemies, but you don't recognize them. You listen to the evidence and you make a decision. So I like the Hebrew here. You don't recognize faces. You don't show partiality, nor take a bribe or a present for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. Uh, It distorts the decision is what we understand here. And it twists. Our word for pervert works here again. So it twists the words of the righteous. So justice is the quality of dealing with people fairly. Judges particularly were expected to reflect God's just nature. By not dealing with the accused on uh, the basis of discrimination, false witnesses, or hearsay, then they would be able to be fair in their judgments. A bribe is any gift that might change the balance in favor of the giver, thus tipping the scales of justice. So bringing bribes would, again, change the balance of justice. So in this verse, God mentions three negatives for a judge or an official's behavior. Again, they are to reflect the righteousness of God, and those are the three things they should not, that they should prohibit. And we'll see some more as we continue here. Verse 20, you shall follow what is altogether just. Another word for altogether is absolutely. You shall follow what is absolutely just. The word there for righteousness is tzedek, and it's used twice here, back to back. So that's how we have the idea of a righteous righteousness, something that is absolutely righteous, that you may live or that you may prosper and inherit, or I like the word here, possess, that you may possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Israel could easily lose the possession of the land if they were disobedient. Godliness is to imitate God in a love for what he is just and true. Altogether, just in the Hebrew is a word repeated twice, stressing the, imp- the importance of the righteousness here. We are to, the word here for live and inherit is God's intention in all his instructions for the good, the blessings of his people. That's how it's often described in the Old Testament and even the New Testament. We're going to live for God so that we can be blessed, prosper. Verse 21. Well, finishing my thought here in verses 20 and 22 uh, and 17.1, the first responsibility of the judge was to prevent impure worshiping practices in the land. And that's what we're going to see now in verses 21 through 22 and also 
verse 1 in chapter 17. They were to prevent the perverting of worshiping. Anything that might lead to synchronism, in other words, accommodating worship of the Lord to pagan systems of worship, adding to God's worship. We call that synchronism. So they were to prohibit that. Verse 21, we come back to the negative side. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image. This would be a representation of an idol. And we'll see that there are two types here. So you shall not plant yourself any tree as a wooden image. The word wooden image is an ashtarah. You're not supposed to plant them near the altar, which you build for yourselves to the Lord your God. Secondly, you shall not set up a sacred pillar or stone, which the Lord your God hates or detests. So God knew that much of the Canaanite idols were attractive and Israel would find it difficult to remove or to destroy them. They wanted to leave them. And after a while, God knew that they would begin to want to worship them as well. Israel would be tempted to leave those idols close to where Israel worshipped, and then they would eventually merge them. The Canaanites used certain trees and wooden images as representations of fertility gods. The Hebrew word translated wooden image in the Hebrew name is the Canaanite, the Canaanite godless goddess of fertility. It was known as Asherah. And the, the sacred pillars, the stones, were the symbolic of the male fertility. So they had both the male and the female side of uh, the fertility. Verse 1 of chapter 17, we have our third prohibition in this group. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep, which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination. The word abomination here uh, can also be understood to be detestable. But what that means is that it's completely unacceptable completely unacceptable to the Lord your God. So sacrifice in Israel was never to be regarded as a means of dumping the unwanted or the unneeded. So if you had animals that were not as well-bred or if there was some problem that was found with that animal, the idea would be, as well, we don't want to use this animal for building the herd, so why don't we just sacrifice it? Well, the answer is God expects our best, and he expected the best from the animals as well in the sacrifices. Bringing blemished or damaged animals showed faith that as one gave Uh, instead of giving one's best, simply used an animal that they did not need or wanted. So God would make 
what remained suitable and plentiful for their needs. In other words, they might say, well, I I don't like using the unblemished one, the strongest one, the most healthy one, because I don't know that I'll have another like this. The answer is God would replenish that. He would replace it. To offer less than the best to God was to despise his name. Offering a less than perfect sacrifice was, in effect, failing to acknowledge him as the ultimate provider of all that is best in life. Also, it was a failure to acknowledge the vast gulf that exists between the perfect holy God and sinful people. In other words, sinful people would be greedy. And in their greed, they want to keep the very best they have instead of giving it to God. Well, God's character demands the best. And when you give him your worst, that simply demonstrates the gulf between his righteousness and our love for him. God has promised to bless Israel, to bless Israel with an abundance of children, animals, and produce. God did not expect a Hebrew to express his thanks, to express his thanks with defective gifts. The blemish or the defect today represents sin. So we understand that when we talk about something that's unblemished, uh, we understand that represents sin. The believer today should have the same faith in God's provision. The believer gives knowing that God has provided for him and will continue to provide for him. And that's the principle that we have in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7 speaks of those who give sparingly are going to reap sparingly. And those who give generosity with generosity, they will receive in generosity. So that is the principle that uh, the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 9. Verse 2, if there is found among you within any of your gates... Again, towns, villages, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing, in crossover or breaking his covenant. The word here for transgressing is the word that to cross over. In other words, it was understood that instead of following the boundary, the border, you would cross over one way or the other. And it comes to mean to break, to break his covenant. Verse 3, if someone has broken the covenant who has gone and served other gods and worshipped worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have commanded, verse 4, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently or thoroughly. And it is indeed, and if it's indeed true and certain, that is an abomination or detestable has been committed in Israel. Now, in verse 3, I like the 
the way the Hebrew says this. It says, uh, the person who has gone. Well, the word gone is, the basic translation is to walk. Holic is the word. And it means to walk. If you're going to walk in that direction, is the sense of this word, and you serve, avav, means to work for or to serve these other gods and worship them. You bow down to them, and they could be any form. Here we have the astral forms, the sun, the moon, or any of the host of the heavens. The host of heavens is periodically understood as angels, but here I believe these are the various formations of the stars that we see at night. They would be able to see them, and they would worship them. And much of this, of course, they learned from Egypt because that was the basis for many of their gods in in Egypt. And they were commanded not to worship them. The Hebrew word here, which I've just explained, transgressing, is used elsewhere to indicate the crossing of a border or a stream. Here the word is used to indicate crossing over the boundaries that God had set for his people. Someone who served other gods had crossed over the boundary set by the first commandment. Verse 4, And it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. You shall inquire thoroughly. In other words, This is not going to be something that is not founded in fact and provable. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates the place of court that man or woman who has committed the wicked thing and shall stone to death. You shall execute that man or woman with stones. That was the principal way of executing uh, capital punishment, was by stoning. Verse 6, Whoever is deserving, deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. This is a critical part of our, or has has been supposed to be, that you cannot be convicted on the witness of one person because at any time somebody can accuse someone else and whether they have uh, evidence or not, well, who are we going to be uh, believe? The one who says, uh, makes the accusation or the one who says, no, I did not commit that. So an, indiv- an in- investigation rather than gospel, gospel is the, the point here. An investigation determined the truth of any report of idolatry. The guilty was condemned to death only after guilt was established by two or three witnesses. Now, this was carried on into the New Testament. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, Matthew 18.16, let's see this. This is a passage that is often misapplied. 
Matthew 18. Turn to Matthew 18. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And in chapter 18, in verse 15, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, if there's something wrong, this isn't an opportunity for gossip or this isn't a a time for piling on, but you simply go and there's been a fault committed and you speak to the individual about it. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. In other words, you have mended the uh, the break that you have. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more by, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So here is the Lord Jesus Christ quoting this passage that it takes more than one person to to judge someone. There has to be more than one. And he quotes this. And then verse 17 says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. In other words, finally bring it to a council. Doesn't need to be the entire congregation, but it's going to be to a larger group. But if he refuses even to hear the church, the congregation, and assembly, then let him be to you like a heathen and as a tax collector. Now, one of the problems that we have here, when we go down to verse 19, is that this is very often misunderstood. We now go from a situation of correcting a fault or a sin. And in verse 19, it says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The next verse says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. This was not meant to be people coming together for prayer two or three people praying, and then I will respond to it. And very often you'll hear this. this That's not the context. The context is working through evidence so that you understand what is how to make a decision. And God says, if you do this, two or three, or even a, uh, a council, does this in a godly way, the decision will be accepted in heaven. All right, let's go back to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. You'll notice here that the first commandment was not limited by gender. It says either a man or a woman can be executed for a crime against God. So there are those who would say that the Old Testament is male-centric. But it's not. It's for both the men and women. Verse 7. The hands of the witness, or we could say evidence, shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hands of all people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. 
this is an interesting principle. I think it's uh, an important one to notice that the witnesses participated in the stoning of the guilty because they were responsible for the person's condemnation. If there's condemnation, the witnesses, those who are involved in this, can't wander off and say somebody else needs to make the execution. No, if you're involved in the condemnation, you're going to be involved in the, the sentencing. So Jesus' words about throwing the first stone referred to this practice. Those of you who make a condemnation, you should also be the one that throws the stone. So the charge and the result of guilt were serious. Those making the charge and giving the evidence or testimony would also participate in the execution. The witnesses were to be the first in the execution. So if their testimony was later proved false, they, in effect, would have committed murder and would be liable to execution. It's important for that justice to be understood. They were going to involve, they had to involve themselves in the capital punishment. And if it was proven later that they lied, then they have committed murder themselves. Verse 9, if a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy with in your gates, your town, your village, then you shall arise and go up to the place where the Lord your God chooses. We see this phrase, um, the Lord your God chooses. So there, it's as if they were pushing the situation, the judgment, to a higher level. And the decision would need to be, would need to honor God. So the more complex cases were sent to a higher court. Degrees of guilt refers to cases of of manslaughter or murder. And that is something that could be somewhat a death accidentally or something that was, in fact, homicide. So sending the case to the place which the Lord your God chooses was now making the judgment before those who represented God to the nation. These are the priests and also the officials. They are holding positions that uh, are responsible for maintaining the law. They held a higher responsibility to God. They would be more distant from the person or the situation, and hopefully they would be more objective. Verse 9, And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence, or another word is verdict. Announce the verdict of the judgment. You shall do according to the sentence, or the verdict, 
which they pronounced upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. So you'll notice it again. We have God's God's place and now the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order that they order you to do. The phrases here give us again that sense of you know we might say it's similar to the Supreme Court and there is should be more of a sense of justice of just in that location and that's what we have here verse 11 according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you according to the judgment or verdict which they tell you you shall do you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. So what this is saying is that you bring this case to the higher level, the higher court. And and the reason you do that is because you're having a difficulty in making the proper justice, judgment. And then if you do believe it is the individual is guilty, then you're having difficulty in the what will the sentence be. The sense of this verse says, if you get a decision, you cannot uh, turn away from it. So the descendants of the family of Aaron were the priests of Israel. The Levites were the descendants of Levi, and they were the ones that were to serve in the most holy places in the tabernacle. Once a verdict was pronounced by the priests and officials, there was to be no deviation. The verdict was considered to have been from God. And there was no opportunity at that point to say, well, let's lessen the, the sentence. The decision of the tribunal would be final. Any rebellion against or uh, opposition against the true, uh, tribunal was considered contempt of court and was, it says, a capital offense. This made the rule of justice paramount in the land and helped prevent anarchy. Verse 12. Now, the man who acts presumptuously, this word presumptuously, can be translated in a rebellious way or simply something that is being rejected. Uh, there's another word here that very often is translated this way, and that is detestable. But the man who acts presumptuously, in other words, in a disobedient way, and will not heed, will not listen to the priest who stands to minister before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So once a decision has been made in the place where God resides by the, the priest or the judge, if there's someone who rebels against that, so you shall put, the man shall die. So you shall put away, you shall purge the evil from Israel. The man who acts presumptuously is one who knows but turns away from, press, from the 
priestly instructions. And you might say, isn't that a bit harsh? In the Mosaic law, once the law was set, Israel was simply to obey it because it was believed to have come from the mouth of God. And uh, that's what this is expressing here. Verse 13 says, And all the people shall hear and fear. They shall show reverence and no longer act presumptuously, rebelliously. So the capital punishment in the Old Testament was a deterrence to crime. Every now and then you'll hear somebody say, well, capital punishment uh, isn't really a deterrent. Not according to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, capital punishment was designed to be a deterrence. These passages, as I mentioned as we began this study this evening, these passages teach us of the character of God, teach us of his righteousness and the expectations of obedience to his laws. We have the exact same expectation today, but we don't have the same structure as the Mosaic Law. While the punishment is different in the church age, the character of God remains the same. He is immutable, and therefore his character is uh, important for us to not only to observe, to learn, but to obey it. Okay, let's close our eyes in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these laws. And we're thankful, Father, that while we don't have these same laws, we still have the same character that you have provided for us. And we know the right from wrong. And we know, Father, that you require obedience. And while the punishment or the sentence may not seem to be the same, we know that your character is the same. And we are to respect it. We are to to uh, to respect the the guidance that we have in the epistles in the New Testament. And they're very clear. We pray, Father, that we would remember the importance of hallowing you is a way that we could say this. And we're thankful, Father, that we have this relationship with you because uh, of your love for us that sent your son to the cross. And it's his work on the cross that provides our opportunity for eternal life simply by believing in his uh, finished work on the cross, dying for sacrifice and being sacrificed for the guilt of our sins. Father, I pray that if there's anyone who, listening to this lesson, is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, has never understood their path to eternal life, that they would remember it's by believing, by having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.